0: Hi and welcome to the Fleet Navigator podcast from LeasePlan, your go-to GPS for all fleet matters. I'm joined again by Annie Rayner. Morning, Andy. Morning, Matt. How are we this morning? Yeah, I'm very well. you so- Yeah, not too bad. So today we are going to be discussing the future of company cars. So this is a pretty big topic. Some areas we've covered in specific podcasts before, and really now we're going to bring it all together and try and examine where things are going to go over over the next few years. So we're going to talk a little bit about company car tax. We're going to talk about the new emissions tests, some rules around the optional remuneration arrangements or OPERA. Andy will be on standby as my acronym police again, no (laughs) doubt. Very well done. And uh, we're also going to bring clean air zones into the conversation as well. So I guess we'll probably start with company car tax because it's a biggie. And we have to look and see that one of the biggest changes is on the horizon going into next year as as we move towards what has always supposed to be a, a greener CO2 based taxation system. But ever more so from next year on, as we see the lowest polluting cars drop from 16%, if you've got an electric vehicle today, to 2% next year. So a really dramatic change, which everyone is expecting to accelerate the uptake of company cars even further. So I guess, you know, we've got to look at the new bands coming in. So at at zero bands, so a fully electric vehicle, it'll drop to 2%. And then there's a range of five bands from 130 zero emission miles down to less than 30. Sorry,
1: can I just just in case because we talk of this this term ZER or zero emission range. So just to just so I'm, I'm the voice of the listener. So just to be clear, so the zero emission range is the is the amount of miles on battery that you can do before your the battery runs out and your engine kicks in. That's absolutely right. Perfect. Absolutely right.
0: So only the highest range vehicles, so 130 miles plus, there isn't a battery electric vehicle, sorry, there isn't a a plug-in hybrid or, you know, any form of hybrid vehicle that'll do 130 plus miles at the moment. Yeah. So you're looking at kind of the 40 to 69 range. So you're kind of looking at 8% eight percent tax on those vehicles. So it's, you know, it's a change yeah. and it's a complex one. Yeah. And we've got to bear in mind that these are some of the longer lead time vehicles when you think about electric vehicles. For sure. So people will start quoting now for vehicles that could, well, not see delivery until next April. Wow! So it's really, really food for thought.
1: Yeah, it's a bit of a punt. And I think it's, um, you know, I, and certainly from a situation of previous years, we're still in a in rather uncertain territory because we're only we've only got a table that goes up to year twenty twenty one. I've been running training courses for, for years around these topics, and it's my first time in my memory as a, as a trainer where we haven't had at least three, four, five years yeah, in advance. Years so if least. I'm quoting anyone on a a three year deal or a four year deal, I can give you a very good steer up to in the next two years. But outside of that, it's a bit of fingers crossed and hope that um, the chances look in our way when they release the next tables.
0: Yeah, I've been in this industry since 2005, and I've been in company cars or in and around company cars since, you know, the changes in 2002, since these tables were brought in. And I've never known a time where we've had less than three years' visibility. And not forgetting, for fleet managers and people that run fleets out there, of course, yes, it's about the amount of company car tax the individual is paying and trying to choose the right vehicle for them, But again, we'll talk a little bit more about whole life costs as we go through. But for fleet managers and companies who pay class one national insurance contributions at 13.8% of the taxable value of the car, this is really, really important. So trying to predict and budget for anything beyond 2020,
1: 2021, the the tax year, is impossible. No, You you just can't do it. And I guess... Not giving out too much opinion, but if you were trying to hedge your bets, what this table shows is that the lower your, your emissions figures are, or the higher your zero emission range is, you are at least likely to be mitigating some of the more turbulent changes that may be on the horizon. Would that be fair to say, or that?
0: Yeah, I think so. So, you know, people taking more environmentally friendly vehicles, at least with some form of zero emission range, are going to be down at that bottom end. Yeah. So the highest you'll pay... So long as your CO2 is, it should be also said, so long as your CO2 in the new testing regimes, of course, we'll come on to that a bit later, is 1 to 50 grams of CO2, then you'll be in that lowest bracket. But if we think about what happened to Prius last year, so Prius was an ultra-low emission vehicle, it was sub-75 grams of CO2, it's a plug-in hybrid, so it would naturally fall into those tables. That vehicle is no longer a plug-in hybrid because when it moved through into the NEDC correlated and through into WLTP, so the Worldwide Harmonised Light Vehicle Testing Procedures. Nicely done. That vehicle is now above 75 grams. Yeah. So all of a sudden it attracts congestion charge. It's outside of, of the zero emission mile brackets for next year. And that's a real challenge because they're not the only ones. No. So as of next year, when we start using WLTP for taxation, yeah. gone are the days when you're going to see astronomical ranges and very low CO2 from mm. vehicles that couldn't possibly be achieving that. You know, logic says that BMW 7 Series doesn't really do 129 miles per gallon. No. It's just got a hybrid engine in it, which makes it a little bit more economical.
1: And certainly when you're not you're not charging it up.
0: <laughs> well, there is, there is that. I think to let's spread some of the, uh, not necessarily criticism around, but, you know, the Mitsubishi Outlander, which was absolutely been the go-to fleet car for many, many years for people. I personally have got two friends, it would surprise you to know. No, not at all. I've got a couple of friends. One, I'm one of them, I should point out. In, indeed, so <laughs> I've got one of them. But you don't have a Mitsubishi <laughs> no, <I> Outlander. Don't. <laughs> so these, these couple of friends of mine, one's got an Outlander and he regularly charges it up. He's got a charge point at home. He does the right thing. And the other one, it will never see a charge point in its life. No. It's just for tax purposes. Yeah. And that's what these new lower zero emission mile ranges are there to trap and it's what the testing procedures are there to do to make sure that everyone's getting a fair crack of the whip.
1: Yeah. And what it says on the, on the vehicle stickers is correct or yeah. as, as accurate as we can get it. No, else, because if not, when that engine's kicking in, which will be all the time if you're not charging it up, you've got actually a less efficient combustion engine sort of driving it on. So, And that, again, I know a lot of dealers and brokers alike, when in the brochure they were looking at the mileage figures three months later when that driver rang back and said, "My." Vehicle's not doing anything yet. You were screaming to yourself, well, charge it. <laughs> Plug it in, my friend, <laughs> to not be a cynic. But, you know, and I think all of these ideas around our drive to, to lower emissions, you know, it's against the backdrop of last year. Overall emissions going up, you know, grams per kilometre. Yeah. You know, So we, we're sitting around 124 as an average. So if you're looking at the table that you're looking at, that's, you know, if you are doing, you know, 120 to 130 grams per kilometre, as of next, year, you know, so that's a sizable percentage, benefit in kind. And again, some of that is actually people so disappointed or confused around diesel. Again, thinking, well, maybe it's back to petrol. And of course, from a CO2 point of view, that's not the option either. So it is a confusing landscape and you can see this drive for people to look around and say, OK, my next car is coming up in a year's time. What am I really going to do to either, you know, make this cost efficient for me or what are my options? And I guess our audience being drivers or fleet managers out there hopefully you're all out listening intently you know this is a landscape that needs a bit of clarification so hopefully you know this podcast in particular um, may bring a bit of insight to you
0: yeah certainly i mean that's the the work that myself and my consultancy team are doing at the moment is very much conversational with customers about where we think things are going to go what we think is going to happen because Whilst obviously we've seen the jump in the correlated data from a CO2 perspective and the drop in miles per gallon or range in some cases, yeah. what we don't know yet and what we're not seeing yet is some of the WL to the full-blown WLTP yeah. data flowing through. I spoke at an EV event a couple of weeks ago, and one of the cars that I found most surprising because we were doing some we were doing some fleet modelling, very popular car BMW 3 Series 320 diesel. And that car, at the, you know, a couple of years ago, 2018-19, that car was 109 grams of CO2. Right. Now, the car hasn't changed. The testing criteria has. Yeah. That car at the moment is 122 grams. So it's jumped in NEDC correlated terms. What we are seeing, what we're sensing, and certainly some of the conversations that we're, we're having with the data providers, is that vehicle is expected to shift to 131 grams mm. next year. Now, put that in context. If that vehicle had stayed at 109 grams from a taxation perspective, it goes from 22% to 25% to 26%. So it's increasing, but it's a relatively gradual increase. Yeah. That vehicle would go from 22% to 28% to 31% next April. <laughs> and, of course, if it's not RDE2 qualifying, it's not RDE2 compliant, that we don't know yet, you up? can put another 4%, 4% on top of that. Yeah. So you could be looking at a vehicle that's gone from 26% at 109, if we include the 4% diesel surcharge, to 35% next year. Wow. Which is phenomenal when you consider that that vehicle is a mainstream fleet vehicle yeah and we've got to bear in mind that discounts as we probably all know don't affect the p11d value which is the tax calculation so class 1a national insurances etc etc if you introduce a whole life cost policy methodology which is always our starting recommendation as as a team that vehicle will probably fall outside of, of the bandings that you want which does push you a towards petrol yeah because it is lower emitting and it the RDE two test doesn't apply. You yep. won't see any of those surcharges. That's a four percent reduction already. Yeah, exactly. And so is it any wonder that companies are looking towards petrol again? For me, it's always about what's most appropriate. It's about looking at behavioral patterns. Yeah. Gone are the days where we should now where we are able to look at a grade by grade boundary. Yeah. You have to look differently and say, well, what's the behaviour of my driver population, which ones are doing mostly motorway driving and where diesel could be appropriate, which ones are most appropriate for maybe a cheaper electric vehicle Mm. if they're doing more runabout journeys and they're based in city centres. Gone are the days where it's a kind of en masse fleet policy. It's now planning for which of those populations should be in which vehicles. And indeed, and we'll come on to this in a bit, which of those populations may well be better suited to move into some form of supported cash allowance?
1: Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because I think it is getting so nuanced now that in the past, this whole drive to electric, I think we've got to be a bit more practical breaking it down. It's not just, okay, I, I've had diesel and petrol, my next is electric or, or plug-in. It, it's, it is it's saying, okay, well, I'm operating 1,000 vehicles, Let's break some of this down. You know, where's my first hundred drivers? That This would be a perfectly suitable shift for them. That then it says to me, OK, I run my company. Let me get some charging points in. Let me build some infrastructure in. And you start to then, the movement, it might seem smaller by scale, but far more likely to build up some traction because you then have people around the office who's talking to Gary and Gary says, oh, I've been in my new Nissan Leaf and I'm really enjoying it oh, okay, I thought it was a bit of a faff. Oh, actually, we do similar journeys, actually, next time I'm having a look at it. Because I think that's, again, what I'm seeing is that, I've said to you this before, you know, it's going to be beyond a test drive or an experience centre for people to get their heads around this. And I think the more, you know, we're strange creatures as humans, we need proof that someone's getting on with it someone enjoys it so word of mouth by nature will build up some momentum for that as well so i think yeah from a fleet operator point of view rather than saying okay i'm gonna have to move wholesale from this to this and say okay no i don't i'm on a different renewal cycle anyway as we know not all 500 vehicles come up for renewal at the same time so just break it down and say okay Instead of a policy that says either price bans or CO2 bans, let's look at it on what type of jobs they do, what type of commute they do. And let's put out a survey to our staff and say, okay, let's try and get under the skin of, of how these vehicles are used, what do you use it for the weekend, how large your family is, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And always do a pre-qualifying, the sort of questions you'd be asked at a dealership one-on-one, but actually help companies put a plan together to say, oh, well, let's see what's out there for our staff. Maybe that's a, a solution. But I think it becomes then far more applicable now for some to make that move than, oh well, maybe in two or three years' time. That
0: supported cash perspective, I think, is some of the conversations that I've been having certainly over the last six months. It isn't just about cost, it's also about complexity. Mm. We think about the new testing, if we think about optional remuneration, and it, it won't surprise you to know that someone that works for a leasing company is not going to advocate cash, and there are very good reasons for it. And when we say supported cash, what we mean is You can provide an individual with a cash allowance, but give them access, whether that's mandated or optional, to personal contract hire scheme or an employee car ownership scheme based on a credit sale basis, both of which it won't surprise you to know that obviously lease plan has. So all of those things should be considered for, for years. Our industry has defended company car, company car, company car. And actually, we're now at the tipping point where most informed salespeople, consultants won't be saying that anymore. They'll be saying, look, there is a population for whom it's expensive. Review your cash allowances. Make sure they're on balance. Make sure they're in line. Perhaps, you know, you need to give access to a structured cash-based scheme where you've got document controls around insurance documents, maintenance documents, et cetera, et cetera, licensing arrangements to make sure that you're still compliant from a duty of care perspective. And revenue have got to wake up to this because the other thing that revenue are going to find if they're not careful as they keep overtaxing and overtaxing the company car population is they forget that the behavior of most company car drivers that take cash even within the structured PCH-based schemes... Personal contract be, hire. Personal contract hire, thanks, <coughs> Andy. They'll be looking towards second-hand vehicle leasing, yeah. and revenue
1: will lose out on yeah. the VAT on those new registrations. Yeah, and, and we're going to be looking at uh, the subject of driver-maintained against funder-maintained mm. contracts as well. And again, you know, something that I know concerns you and myself is that as this rise of personal contract hire, whether, whether new, as you say, or, or used, increases... If you look at the percentage across the UK that sits somewhere just under 20% of personal contract hire leases that are written have a maintenance element included within the contract, compare that to business contract hire, which we've known years and years and years, it's up in the the mid 80s, uh, 80%. And that's a, a whole different area when you talk of duty of care, residual values when vehicles are coming back at the end of lease, vehicles we're sharing roads with, how safe are they? and an overall cost perspective as well. People Mm. looking at, okay, well, I can afford £200 a month, but can you uh, take £200 a month and two tyres that have been punctured and the like? What was that stat you said to me the
0: other day? Yeah,
1: so the FCA did a um, a report a couple of years ago. FCA? uh, uh, The the Financial Conduct Authority. (laughs) Of course, hold on a minute. That was... (laughs) <laughs> I wasn't expecting that at all. Uh, yes, uh, the Financial Conduct Authority. So they did a report, a really great report, actually, if you hunt it down um, on the FCA's website on vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And it's it was really good because I think they've really shifted to look at moving away from this idea of vulnerable means, you know, just how much money you've got or how old you are or, or what your socioeconomic background is or what your upbringing is or what you're doing to actually all of us. On this planet, at some point we'll find ourselves in a vulnerable position uh, where our focus of attention isn't on getting a vehicle or or supporting that. And so there's lots of stats, but one of the ones that struck me, particularly aligned to fixing your costs through maintenance, was that just under half the adult uh, UK adult population has less than £300 in savings that would protect them for an unexpected bill. Wow. So, And that's often, when you look at vulnerability, that's often the starting point to a domino effect of other things... Um, Other wheels coming off to excuse the analogy
0: but that's where people then make those harsh decisions as to yeah do i get that maintenance check do i replace that tire that i know is under or do i put food on the table this month that's absolutely you know and i think
1: again we'll probably leave that for another podcast because i think it is it is really making sure that rather like the discussion we've been having about whole life costs Mm. the trouble certainly from a retail sensibility is when i'm talking to you about maintenance what you undoubtedly will see is your Your monthly spend or rental, as we would call it, go up. Now, if I'm in a two year lease at six, 7,000 miles a year with a long life service on that vehicle, I'm going to back that straight back to you saying, I would never spend £30 a month on that. But that's, we're missing, I think, the point on what else people are getting maintenance contracts for. But maybe we'll, that's just a little teaser trailer for (laughs) for a podcast coming up. But it is, but again, it's, it's something that, as you say, bringing companies back to how they can protect some degree of control still rather than just giving people cash you know the, the great thing about an employee car ownership scheme or the like is that you do get still to retain the control of company car policy, what vehicles are your sales people turning up yep. in to customers with you've got a good sense that the vehicles that out on the road that are your responsibility during working time as an operator are safe and well looked after and reliable and everything else so I think uh, yeah you're onto something there
0: and I think the best some of the best fleets that have a have those options in place a lot for their perk schemes around those cash allowances. They almost approach it from an operator's license or an O license yeah, perspective yeah. because it doesn't matter who you are or what you do. you cannot get rid of your duty of care. you no. there is this controlling mind part of the corporate manslaughter act when it was revised you know some years ago now that basically says somebody in the organization is responsible for those drivers there has to be a nominated individual and if they're driving on company business it is your responsibility jointly with them to make sure that their vehicles are correctly maintained that they have the correct level of business insurance it's funny i was genuinely talking to a buddy of mine yesterday who's who is about to come out of his company car scheme and you know he had the conversation with me he couldn't make a Nissan leaf work at the moment because of some vagaries in the company car policy so he was coming out and he was going to take the cash and when I said to him about insurance funnily enough and I said well you just need to make sure that your business insurance is up to spec particularly given the amount of kit you've got I haven't got a clue and I said well look you know there's 12 different types of business insurance You know, and I know what this guy does. You need to make sure that it covers the kit that you're carrying, etc. Because if you're caught with inadequate insurance, you're driving without insurance. No, for sure. End of. And if, heaven forbid, you have an accident where you injure somebody else... Then corporate, mans- you know, corporate health and safety will be knocking on the company's door, door yeah. to say, "What are you doing?"
1: Yeah, I think I should point out at this point, we did a, uh, a lovely podcast as part of our series on risk. We did. Um, so hunt that one down if you if you're joining this one for the first time. and You think, oh, hey have these guys been all my life? I um, do <laughs> realise we've done some other podcasts and one of them on risk. So if you wanted to bone up on some of the, some of these yeah. subjects we've just talked about, go and have a listen to that. Some good stuff in there.
0: And there's, and there's plenty of good stuff on insights.leaseplan.co.uk as well on the insights page to direct to. So I think we talked a bit about the company car tech side, talked a bit about this lack of visibility. The one thing I would say is that We have also been out without a finance bill for quite a period of time. We were expecting some sort of signposts in the spring statement, but literally that document almost word for word said, we'll let you know in a few months. We've never had a consult. We know big consultation was launched in January on the future of company car taxation. It was the most responded to consultation in history. Yeah. Um, so normally these consultations, you'll get you know maybe nine, maybe ten responses. There were over three hundred to that wow. one to make sure the government are thinking about what happens when the CO2s go up next year in the tax tables for company cars, drivers and fleets and costs. You've got to bear in mind it's the same car. It's not. It's just a different testing yeah. procedure. It's being touted. It's you know the, con- the the considered opinion is that we should see a finance bill in July. Certainly ahead of the budget in October, as we've said before on this podcast, we're not going to get into the dreaded Brexit word, but Brexit is supposed to be happening in October. So will the government be focused on that rather than these changes? Who knows? What we can't have is if you think that if they miss the boat in the finance bill in July or maybe even August, it won't be until that time again next year when we're in the middle of the last company
1: car tax table that we'll get any sign yeah, yeah. of the future, which yeah. is just nonsense. You no, know, and often when they signpost this stuff, it's it's going to happen in a year or two's time. Mm. So if we miss that that cycle, it's not going to be here's the statement, and we're we're implementing it tomorrow. It will be here's the statement, and we'll be implementing it actually when your current table runs out. So if they miss that loop, it'll be interesting. They're either going to have to say, well, nothing's changed yet, which will be a highly unusual move, or they're going to have to rush through something so that people haven't got this. Well, actually, I'm now in contract. I'm now at 2021, and I'm still none the wiser as to what my benefit in kind is going to be the following year, um, which will be a, a horrible position to be in.
0: So assume we get a finance bill in July. What do we think is going to happen? What do we think they're actually going to do? Are they going to do anything about smoothing the taxation, smoothing the introduction of the worldwide harmonised light vehicle testing procedure tests? Do we think they're actually going to pay any attention to any of those consultation responses? I'm not sure.
1: I think there's another area around commercial vehicles as well. So there's been a lot of talk around, obviously, their taxation in Mm. terms of because it's a company vehicle uh, is different, but they've been talking for the last sort of two years, and I know the consultation was asking fleet operators about aligning potentially vehicle excise duty at least as as a first shot for commercial vehicles, aligning that to emissions. And obviously with WLTP, we've been talking about it it went live for new registered cars last September. Of course, the big news this year for that is it's coming in for vans <sighs> and commercials from the 1st of September this year. So that's going to... As uh, well as the effect of options on cars, of Absolutely, course. you Absolutely. Know, so and if you think options of cars have been scary, then wait till you look at what conversion mm-hmm. and what things can be added to commercial vehicles. And so then you've got the dilemma, is it going to be pre-approval, post-approval, pre-conversion? And so I think there will be maybe some nods to that i think with regards to the company car tax table they're going to have to address the elephant in the room that's been in the room say we have to at least put some sort of holding position in that will allow brokers funders the ability to advise properly for customers who wish to continue running company car schemes of what their drivers are likely to pay taxation wise Because we kind of know that from an income taxation point of view, and this is another another stream of that. So Mm. to leave that uncertainty, as you say, coming full circle back to uh, a few minutes earlier, if they don't, then you're going to run the risk of people just saying, OK, I'm going to take cash. There's a whole load of control and revenue that could be lost in that area and duty of care concerns and everything else. I would <laughs> certainly first and foremost like to see some clarity around the Benefit in Kind table, yeah. because I think that is, if I look at all the areas of uncertainty of renewal, that for me is the, the big yeah. one, just because I've like say, and used it. It's the first time we've seen no future years beyond 2021. the yeah. first time that's ever appeared. So, um,
0: Yeah. It's, I think it just it depends what they do with it. I'll say 2020, 2021 is baked in. They could change it. They could change the template, the lens. And for me, I think whilst it would be disappointing if, you know, we think about what we've been talking about, about rising CO2s and, and taxation on vehicles, if they held it for two years, if they, if they said, OK, we can't make any reductions based on increasing CO2s for WLTP, what we'll do is we'll freeze it for three years and we'll hold it, which is still a, almost a tax increase in, in real terms. Yeah but at least gives that degree of certainty and they it stops the 2%, 3%, 3% increases we've been seeing for the last three years. If they do continue the 2 and 3% increases to those tables moving forward for another three years, yeah. that's a real danger, that's a real problem, problem area. Yeah. And what I'd like to see them do, and I think it would be Very, very straightforward Them to do so in conjunction with freezing the percentages is actually introduce almost a discount. So we've seen this 4% additional percentage for if your vehicle meets the real-world driving emission step two standard. Well, why wouldn't you put in some sort of discount percentage to, let's say, well, actually, if your vehicle doesn't meet RDE 2 you get a one-table vehicle excise duty bump, which is in place now. Why couldn't you say that if your vehicle has been tested under the new WLTP standard... Will move you down to tax brackets. You know. yeah. Any degree of complexity is a problem for government departments. Revenue, Treasury, DVLA would have to be on board. They have to give this some thought. If they're going to run the company car tax legislation that we've currently got for another couple of years, which smart money says they will, they just don't have time to address anything outside of Brexit at the moment. And some would say, quite rightly so, we've got to get that right. Otherwise, some of these problems could pale into insignificance, depending on which side of the fence you're on, of course. So let's hope in finance bill we get some clarity over the next couple of years. Let's hope they continue incentivising those lowest emission vehicles. I think that's absolutely key and critical. But actually what we're going to start seeing is some of the legislation and the all parliamentary political groups reporting back on, well, what do we do about lost fuel duty? So that in time is something that needs to
1: be considered. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's still, you know, when you're... When I go and talk to to people about EVs, that's the thing. They come back, well, how long will it be till they start taxing us for? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, if that's your argument for not to get involved, then I don't know, but I would. (laughs) Well,
0: they never, let's be fair, they never did that for LPG vehicles, did they? They never encouraged it and then all of a sudden slapped a tax on LPG. I think the difference with electric, of course, is it's how you split the tariffs. So at the moment, you plug in at home, it's on, it's on your home tariff, which is actually more expensive than a, than a corporate tariff. Yeah. So there are lots and lots of groups looking at the moment about split tariffs. So you're able to charge corporate rates when you're using your vehicle charge point at home. I think that's a bit of a stretch when the government are looking at this and having to address, okay, so what do we do when people are no longer filling up at the fuel station yeah. and we lose the 68, 70% duty plus VAT, of course, in our fuel revenues. Road user pricing would seem to be the answer. We did talk about this in a previous podcast, yeah. but any political party that's running for government yeah. that has it in their manifesto won't get in, no. and any government that introduces it will be out in the next election.
1: It's a it's a yeah. absolute poison apple for anybody to deal with. Yeah, well, I mean, we've seen that. We'll talk a little bit about clean air zones coming up as well. But and whilst all the clean clean air zones going in, not all of them will be chargeable zones, but because they're local authorities and. Mm. I think it's fair to say you start charge, charging any road user above what they're also getting charged for. Um, it's not necessarily a vote winner, but these are the sort of ongoing questions that will need a new type of thinking. I think going forward because the game's changing, isn't it? You know, and I think yeah. not only fuel companies, the large oil companies, you know, they'll, they'll be looking at their business model as well, thinking, "Well, when is this going to be changing?" So they should be running around, manoeuvring, looking at for new markets, looking at for for clean air. Perhaps power generation and the like. And again, we talked to BP last year, buying charge master and other fuel companies following suit So says a whole, you know, we could be here days talking about this stuff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we should probably, we should probably have a nod to the optional remuneration piece yeah. as well, because yeah. we've, we've talked a bit about it. For most people, it's kind of disappeared into the long grass now. For most people, it was something to do with salary sacrifice schemes. Right. For me, I think the bit that gets missed is, number one, salary sacrifice schemes still absolutely work
1: for vehicles that are considered ultra low emission vehicles or ulevs so just in case people hadn't come across salary sacrifice as a as a generic term obviously we've had a product for for years called salary plan but salary sacrifice in a nutshell where would we go with that
0: so in essence salary sacrifice is simply a framework that is layered over the top of a company car scheme And when we say company cars, you know, business contract hire, business contract purchase, that enables an organisation to get a contribution from an employee. And to be clear, everybody has been fixated for many years on making sure the numbers add up, that we recover exactly the amount of money that that vehicle is going to cost in insurance and the vehicle, et cetera. And for an all-employee scheme where the company doesn't want to invest and and pay that money, there's no reason for, for that not to be the case. However... In law there is nothing that says it can be anything from zero contribution which is a company car right yeah. that's where you start yeah, yeah. on a sliding scale to actually getting the contribution from the driver that's appropriate to yeah. the vehicle so there are ways actually that you can you can stagger those contributions in a, in a very simple way yeah. so that you're getting some sort of contribution from the driver yeah. however under all salary sacrifice schemes benefit in kind must apply Right. Otherwise, you can't have that framework. Yeah. It has to be a company car. Otherwise, it breaks the rules. But ultra-low emission vehicles, so optional remuneration was brought in, really from a governmental point of view, to bring in some controls around what happens. So are people actually taking this as a
1: tax avoidance measure? Right, okay. Or is this a benefit to the employees? So it's as much to level the playing field against those people who've taken... A very visible amount of cash, yeah. and be, would be taxed on that and put that towards their own vehicle. Whereas the people saying, "I'm going to join this salary sacrifice scheme and I'm going to get my vehicle provided for," although it's not a company vehicle, to do their, address their mindset yeah. their, in their mindset. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just made a false statement there. Matt, Matt, <laughs> Matt's eyes looked looked upward at that point. No, I knew what I was saying. But in terms of their mindset, yeah. oh, well, I've I've got I'm getting this vehicle, but I don't have to count it. It still counts. So, Opera coming in. Was that balancing act? Yeah, so
0: basically what the rules were before was it doesn't matter what vehicle I pick, it doesn't matter what, I had an option that I can enter into this scheme, I can take a vehicle, bearing in mind company car tax has been increasing, so non-ultra low emission vehicle ta- salary sacrifice schemes have become less attractive right. over the course of the last few years. And you, know, you can't just blame optional remuneration for that. That's the whole tax landscape has changed things. But what it basically said is, I can have the cost of a vehicle, I'll pay my salary sacrifice contributions, but they'll be taken out of my gross salary. So, of course, if you're a higher rate taxpayer, you've got 42% straight away, so yeah. tax and national insurance. If you're a, a base rate taxpayer, it's 32%, so 20% and 12% national insurance contributions. So there were some interesting vehicles that have been taken in the schemes that make you scratch your head. Yeah. I think the first one we did in our first scheme we ever launched was a Range Rover V8 Supersport nice. for a director of a company, which just goes to show that, you know, maybe revenue were on to something in terms of the choices. So what they did was they introduced something that basically said, if the amount of salary that you're sacrificing is more than the taxable value of the vehicle that you're taking. Got it. Even though what you're taking is a company car, we will tax you on the cash that you've sacrificed unless it's an ultra low emission vehicle. Uh Now, the big thing here to say, and and the reason we keep talking about the optional remuneration piece, A, because it is still there, but it's important to recognise that green salary sacrifice schemes work very well. Thank you very much. But the other side is if you are offering the option to your employees of a car or cash, Optional remuneration applies, even if it's not a salary sacrifice scheme. Revenue make uh, no distinction between the practice of me saying to you, Andy Rayner, you can have a company car yeah. if you want, and here is a list of vehicles, or you can take a £6,000 allowance per year. Yeah. If the cash, again, if the cash that you're taking is higher than the car that you would have taken, or you're choosing, or if you, know, you choose the car, but the cash that was an option you know, is higher... They'll tax you as if you were taking the Correct. cash, Correct. but if you take the cash, then you take the cash. Right. End yeah. of. So, it's a complicated piece of legislation yeah. that came in in seventeen that people have been wrestling with yeah. for a while now. And again, it just made, for whatever reason, whatever sense these were brought in. Again, we, you know, I was there with Revenue at Westminster with the guy that was running the consultation and government just didn't understand behaviours. They still had this perception that, well, it doesn't matter because people that come out of a company car scheme and take cash are going to go and get a new vehicle. And actually the BVRLA, British Vehicle Rental and Leasing Association, (laughs) uh, (laughs) a governing body. I'm amazed you took that one on. Did. did, uh, Yeah, it can be a bit of a tongue twister. (laughs) You know, they did a lot lot of research about the billions of pounds, billions in new vehicle registration VATs you know, and I was there and I looked the guy in the eyes and said, you know, this isn't what happened. Drivers will take the cash and they will take a two-year-old vehicle mm. that's still within its MOT. So they've got some cost controls and all all you're doing is losing that revenue. Yeah. So it's been about for a while, but it, that in conjunction with the new tax tables, the new emissions tests, WLTP and real-world driving emissions, it's just making life difficult. Yeah and not to forget that the government itself set up its own department called the Office of Tax Simplification. <laughs> and would you believe... It's that, that that,
1: office... like, <laughs> like the ministers of Silly Walks. It is
0: wonderfully <laughs> oxymoronical, isn't it? And would you believe that department responded to the opera consultation, optional remuneration, and they responded to the Future Tax of Company Cars, so the, uh, their own government department yeah. responded to the government's consultations, which I've always found very strange. Yeah that's fine, whatever encourages the government in the right direction. And certainly some of the things that we're seeing around clean air zones, low emission zones, and the actions that the government, some would say, have been forced to take, Mm -hmm. but, you know, by by client earth, but they've nonetheless have have been moved in the right direction in starting to address some of the particulates issues and some of the clean air zone pieces. We've got to acknowledge that that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, and I think it would probably be worth... Just recapping, because we've nodded towards WLTP and the effect that that's obviously had on benefit-in-kind taxation and by the fact that as a new test regime, um, I think Jato Dynamics did a report on the first four months uh, since it was introduced last September for cars and they saw an average across the UK 10 gram per kilometre rise. So I think you made the comment earlier on that the mindset, Needs to the penny needs to drop for people saying that your car has not changed the test regime has, but if that ten gram per kilometre rise is going to be another increase to your taxation, it's important to understand going forward really why this has been introduced and and what it's all about. So just a kind of whistle stop tour through it. Obviously, worldwide harmonised light vehicle test procedure WLTP was introduced really on the back of some widely held views and some things that had happened uh, that some dubious behaviours there we go I was I was looking for you to step in I, there was nothing <laughs> I could say on air but yeah so the NEDC or new european driving cycle was found actually needing a refresh it, and and not only a refresh but the test needed to to test what what is important when you're measuring everything from the climate and your environment is that can we achieve those statistics as, an, as a day-to-day user of a vehicle? So the test came in for all cars registered from 1st of September last year. And in a nutshell, the, the, the main driving change from the, from the test was it was a longer test. They doubled the distance. It was still a lab test, so it's still a vehicle on a roller. So longer tests, so the engine's on longer, so it's warmer. Higher, t- higher temperatures. That's it, absolutely. Driven for double the distance. Speed was nudged up, so it was more reflective of a kind of a school run through to a, a smallish commute. But obviously the big change around where you may have seen out there as fleet managers, fl- fleet buyers, drivers, was that actually we were now having to include or manufacturers were now having to include the impact of certain options on vehicles that had an impact on either the aerodynamics or the weight of the vehicle and also the difference between an automatic transmission and a manual transmission. And so that went in, I think it's fair to say there's still some degree of uncertainty around uh, vehicle supply around cars as they're gearing up for that being launched for commercial vehicles on the 1st of September. And something you also mentioned, which, again, needs some simplification, is there's, there is actually a secondary test within this regime called RDE, or Real Driving Emissions, yep. and So just to put people in the picture, what what does that relate to, Matt?
0: So real-world driving emissions is a specific test to do with diesel particulates. So this is a tailpipe test, and this is done in a more realistic environment with the vehicle running pre-registration, but post the actual test. And so the vehicles will fall into one of two camps. So it will either be certified RDE step one, Mm. uh, which is a certain level of particulates, or the cleaner diesel vehicles, so this test is about diesels, um, will fall into the real-world driving emissions step two. So it'll achieve a cleaner standard. So the test becomes law in January next year. And that's step one. That's step. So all vehicles have to be step one compliant. Yeah. And vehicles have to be step two compliant from the following year. However, manufacturers have got ahead of the game. Oh. Uh, there's nothing stopping them already putting these vehicles through the test. Because our government, a couple of years ago, some would say it was a tax-raising initiative, Mm -hmm. stated that there'd be a 4% diesel surcharge, so up from the 3% surcharge, levered on vehicles that didn't meet RDE Step 2 from this year, bearing in mind the test isn't (laughs) law until next year, (laughs) and that vehicles would accumulate a one-band penalty in vehicle excise duty if they weren't RDE 2 compliant. Now, that doesn't sound a lot... But there is a sweet spot, kind of about the 130 point in the vehicle excise duty ranges, where if you trip from one to another, it's £300 difference. Wow. It's significant on your first year vehicle excise duty. So, again, that test is part of the overall testing regime, but it's a very, very specific test, and it's about NOx particulates, it's about nitrogen oxides, the nasty stuff that comes out of the tailpipe that is causing premature deaths, well-attributed now is causing premature deaths, so some form of controls. And again, looking at clean air zones, looking at low emission zones, that's all about, yes, driving down CO2, but also making sure specifically that vehicles by their Euro emission standards, and that's where those correlate to specific steps within Worldwide Harmonised Light Vehicle Testing Procedures, means that only the cleanest vehicles are in and
1: around our schools, our communities and our city centres. Yeah. And again, we've got some more resources on the Insights website um the BBLA have done a lovely bit of work around clean air zones they've put an interactive map together which will really show you in your geographical location uh, because a lot of people don't realize because obviously the, the big headline grab has been the ultra low emission zone introduced on the 8th of april in london it's the first one that's gone live Again, just to give a little bit of clarity around that, because you may not have been, you know, work or, or live around the London area. It follows the exact template of the congestion charge, and it's basically saying if your vehicle is not compliant and you come into that zone, either whether you're parking up or travelling through, there's an additional £12.50 a day added to what you'd be paying for your congestion charge and that's significant if you're a small van operator or even if you're just mm-hmm. driving around there the compliance itself is fairly straightforward generally if it's petrol and again i'm going to give you some broad age sort of cutoffs but again go to the tfl.gov.uk website forward slash ulez and there's a lovely big button that says check your vehicle yep. push that button Pop your registration number in there and it will tell you whether you're compliant. The great thing is if you're compliant for London, you will be then compliant at this stage for any other clean air zone uh, that's going to be introduced around the country. Birmingham, Leeds. Yeah, so Birmingham and Leeds are the two that have absolutely been ratified. They're both coming in on the 1st of January next year. Leeds is slightly different because it's not including passenger cars at this point. But it is including HGVs or heavy goods vehicles and buses, coaches, and actually some private hire vehicles as well. Whereas Birmingham is like London. It's a category D, which basically is if it burns fossil fuel um, in an internal combustion engine, it will be compliant. Uh, And if it's non-compliant, you'll be charged. So generally, the rule would be Euro 4 for petrol. So that would be cars, minibuses, and the other specialist vehicles. And they put that at around anything beyond sort of January 2006 mm. should be okay. So we're talking sort of 13-year-old. Yeah. But, there were, you know, again, many people who are their children just passing their driving test and, and the like, you know, you still see some absolutely some yeah, 52s, yeah. some O2s, yeah. uh, 53s around there. But diesel's the big, the big one because I think people think, oh well, okay, thirteen year old. But that's for petrol. For diesel, there are it's Euro six will will be the standard, and they're only guaranteeing that from September two thousand and sixteen onward. Yep okay now bear in mind that just guidelines you'd need to check your vehicle because it'll be taking the actual emissions and the sorry the engine from your v5 or your logbook or registration document but that's only that's less than three years ago so i think there'll be a lot of people that will wander in inadvertently in a non-compliant diesel vehicle and then obviously Heavy goods vehicles. They're saying anything beyond sort of 2014 Mm. should be okay. So again, if you're going into those areas, that's a Mm. hundred pound a day as a charge. And I think in terms of clean air zones, again, there are 60 local authorities currently submitting clean air quality plans into the government that will have to be ratified. Some have got to be good to go for implementation next year. So again, if you go back to this interactive map. And we can pop a link on the Insights website, yep. or you can just Google BVRLA Clean Air Zone or CAZ, and you can just find out what your local authorities like you to do. To see, okay, if I'm coming up to renewal stage, is you know, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm not, I'm not sure what to do. Taxation, I might extend it for another year. Just have a look at, at the likelihood of either. Do you employ anyone within those areas, or are people likely to be yeah. travelling through those areas? Because that's a heck of a daily charge. And again, if you Google Birmingham clean air zone or Leeds clean air zone, they've all got their own, birmingham.gov.uk. There's lots of exemptions. There's some money available, like there was for London as well. So they put in a scrappage scheme announced for charities and small businesses, and they launched that on the 22nd of February. There's some exemptions for if you're a resident. There could be some exemptions if you work in that area. So it's it's a subject that, as we've been talking about, the more you start digging, I think, anything around sort of flexibility of thinking and, and moving your mindset just away from, or your focus away from a, a monthly rental to, okay, what else is on my horizon? What, it, what else you got
0: to think about? Absolutely. And whilst, you know, we should say it isn't just about London, we've been careful to mention some of the other areas, you know, Bristol City Council, so down in pirate country in my neck of the woods, <laughs> um, they're also looking at it very seriously. Yeah. And actually Bristol may be one of the first ones to go zero emission zone straight away yeah. rather than, you know, very city centre focused. Rather than go moving to a low emission zone, but I would just say a word on London. So transport for London are very open about this, and they want this to be communicated. This isn't about penalising people unnecessarily. So, but I, what I would urge you when you're looking at the TfL website is actually look at how the their low emission zone is going to be expanding, yeah. because in over the course of the next few years, yeah. it'll actually expand out to the to the circular. Yeah, 25th of October
1: 2021. Okay. Um, so yeah two years in October, it is going pretty much to anything within the North Circle yep. or South Circle of London. I mean, have a look at the at the image supplied on the website, and it's it big. is uh, it is big. And
0: and I would, you know, watch out for, for Oxford as well. So yeah. Oxford are going zero emission from next year, I believe. Yeah. And again, if you look at their expansion plans, that moves year on year. You will only be able to drive in and around the centre of Oxford if you're in a zero emission vehicle, in yeah. an electric vehicle. So these things are important. They are right and necessary steps uh, that government and local councils are needing to take. But we're here to point these things out to make sure that you're not inadvertently caught. And if you are doing business in and around those areas with vehicles that aren't compliant, that you have a roadmap, that you have a plan, and that you are taking some of those costs into account and that you're not just caught out. Because whilst it starts at a very low charge, it rises to a very heavy fine very,
1: very quickly. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think what I'm hoping, again, from the real driving emissions test is that whilst there is or there's still going to be internal combustion engines for a while, petrol and diesel are still valid not everyone can upgrade not everyone can go electric but this is this move in clean air zones and ultra low emission zone is about making it the best diesel you can have and the best petrol in terms of best for the environment because it has a massive impact you know i mean the the first month of running the ultra low emission zone the great news was 75 percent of the vehicles traveling in there were compliant so that means actually people have got ahead of this or they're staying out yeah that's important as well and the great thing with clean air is that you only need a couple of days or a day of those vehicles not coming in or newer vehicles coming in and being re- replacing the older vehicles, and the air quality improves. Mm. Voila, who'd have thought?
0: <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely, the, the, the message is, uh, is that you know, clean petrol and clean diesel are still valid. But again, I would urge you to talk to whoever your fleet advisor go-to person is for, to talk about fleet policy. Hopefully it's this podcast, clearly, and the Insights uh, at uk or uk pages. Because, you know, you should be considering a switch now to plug-ins or even fully electric schemes because, A, that's the way taxation is pushing us and it's the right thing to do for my future. Um, You know, fingers crossed, I'm still around in 30 years'
1: time, but certainly for my children's future and and the children's children's future. No, for sure. And I think we – I mean, we have done – Oh, I say it myself, an exceptional podcast on electric vehicles charging infrastructure. So again, go hunting for that, because uh, not tooting mine and Matt's own horns. But I think we answer a lot of questions there. And not only a lot of technical questions, but I think this mindset barriers that, we, yeah. that we've got, which undoubtedly exists from range anxiety to uncertainty of technology to batteries and everything else. So do give it a listen because I think it will start to loosen some knots, which is really what we're here to do. You know, it's, yep. it's about to kind of put some stuff in front of you that's not an 800 page report or data heavy, but actually some stuff that I'm sure is rattling around your heads when you're coming up to deciding on what you're gonna do for your fleet going forward or your next vehicle you're looking to renew. Okay,
0: well good. So I think we've covered a number of areas let's leave it there for now we've as as we've talked about there are a number of these podcasts out there to help you through some of those specific areas but for now thank you once again andy
1: more than welcome it's been a pleasure and we'll see you next time take care